Hi, Spring fans. Welcome to a beautiful podcast. I'm your host, Spring Developer Advocate Josh Long, and this show is all about the real heroes behind Spring and its ecosystem. Welcome to another installment of a beautiful podcast. How are you this fine uh, Thursday, the 13th of October? Can you believe it's already October? Nobody asked me. Nobody sent me a memo. I didn't get it. It's it's just moving too fast. Things are going way too quickly. Uh, and that is no more evident than by the fact uh, that I am actually, as I record this, in Antwerp, Belgium, uh, for DevOx, uh, the, the, you know, the, the original one, the one in Belgium. Uh, uh, first time since 2019. I am super excited to be back. I tell you, it's been a hot minute since I've been here, but uh, I am happy to be here. Uh, and I'm pre- presenting at the iCode Java show later uh, this morning, actually. Uh, that's virtual, so if you want to watch me there, I'm, I'll be there. But I'm also in DevOx with my buddy James Ward. Uh, we're, and we're going to be co-presenting on, you know, the awesome uh, opportunities implied by Spring Boot and Kotlin. Uh, and it's really just, it's wonderful to be back in in Antwerp. I, I've missed this show uh, for three long years, right? That, that pandemic took a lot from us, uh, but it also took DevOps. And um, I've missed it. I've just really missed it. Um, I got to tell you, though. I didn't miss Antwerp, and, um, you know, I, I, I travel. I used to travel. You know, I, I travel a little bit now, but before the virus took all, all so much from all of us, uh, I used to get on a lot of planes, and I would just dread coming to Antwerp every year, right? Because, uh, and it's partly because of DevOps, but it's also just partly because of, of Antwerp, right? Uh, it's not to say that it's not a nice place. It's just that the circumstances that you are offered or afforded as a visitor were not great. And I've had a lot of my assumptions challenged on this trip uh, for the better, obviously. Uh, and so so let's just, you know, go down the list here. Um, normally, DevOps is in November or so, right? It's usually later in the year, so it's darker and colder still. Um, and, and it stays dark long into the morning. Uh, and And it's... You know, for example, as I record this, it's almost eight o'clock in the morning, and the the sun is it's not even out. The, the street lights are on uh, and, and all that. And obviously, this is natural for anybody in, in a further sort of northern um, latitude. And um, uh, you know, it's 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 just dark. So so the the experience is you go into the Devox show. It's in a theater, and it's out in the middle of nowhere in the city. It's 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 a very big venue for. A lot of people. It's a movie theater, though, a working movie theater that they shut down for the show. Um, and uh, but but you're out there in the middle of like nowhere, and unless you drive a car, there's no great way to get around. There's a tram you can take that you have to wait for, but it's also very cold. And typically, I would go into the, I'd go to the to the show in, early in the morning, and especially when I used to do booth duty, um, you'd get there very early uh, before the sun had come up, basically. Or as it was just, you know, peeking over the um over the horizon, and you'd be there all day, and then you'd come out, and it's dark. It's dark again because it's the sun's already long since set. So it just got very depressing, and and, and um, I so enjoyed being with all the people there, and that's the reason you go to these shows is for the hallway track, right? The uh, the off festival, as we as we say uh, in French. Uh, so uh, yeah, I just I love that, but I just didn't love the darkness for, you know, for a week or three days or four days or whatever it was. And I didn't love the cold. It's just, it gets very cold here. Um, and it cuts you. And, and since you have no great, it's not easy to get where you're trying to go. 
you end up stuck in the cold waiting for things, you know? Um, so you're, it just, it's just not great. I, so similar, and yet when you get in the theater, when you get into the conference itself, there's thousands of people, right? So you're hot and sweaty in there. There's a lot of body heat, a lot of energy. Um, and so you're simultaneously sweating, but also cold, which just makes it all the more miserable. You're just constantly uncomfortable. Um, and, uh, and, and of course, you know, if you want to get around, you can take a taxi or you could take a taxi, but they all, they all required cash. And there was no app that you could use to summon the taxi. You just had to hope that one turned up or you could uh, phone them and, and all that. And then, you know, that's a lot of work just to go get for some, for example, food, uh, you know, around the movie theater, at least before there was nothing really great. There's a, a look quick, which is a, it's like a McDonald's that is very common in, in the, in the Francophone world. Um, and, uh, you know, and there's beer and I don't, everybody, everybody here loves the, they go to beer central and have beer and, you know, it's fine. I'm not really much of a beer person myself, so I didn't love that. But again, I do it for the people. Uh, but so much of that has just changed this time. First of all, it's October, so still brighter uh, and earlier and warmer. Uh, and so I can, and I've got a light Patagonia. I'm, I'm fine, you know, in the evenings or in the morning. It seems very comfortable. Now they have Uber, so I can call a car anywhere in the city, and it's there relatively quickly. I don't need to have cash. I don't need to go to the ATM. I don't need to beg and hope somebody will drive drive me on the contingency that we can find an ATM near where I'm being dropped off so that I can pay them. Um, and of course that, that the availability of Uber solves the other problem, which is if I want to go out and get, you know, good food, delicious food, uh, it, it's, there's no friction in doing so. Right. Um, and also, <laughs> uh, the beer problem is solved. So now instead of just going where the people are, I can quickly dart out to wherever and get, you know, get something else. So yesterday I made a point of like, finding a list of the best uh, cocktail bars, you know, in, in the city. And I just found some amazing watering holes, just amazing. Uh, very, very good drinks, you know, very, very good quality uh, uh, adult beverages, you know. So that's just been night and day, and night and day difference. I've just really, really loved, I could live here uh, happily, very happily. The other thing I've had challenged um, was my admittedly, um, less than ideal poor assumptions about uh about ho the holiday inn you know uh so i i confess I, I arrived here yesterday early in the morning i arrived in belgium i took a taxi from brussels to antwerp and i arrived at my hotel the red and blue astrid and uh, i turned up and they said oh sir we've canceled your reservation oh good grief why uh well you were supposed to be here last night well of course i do this a lot right uh, anybody who travels enough knows this trick you book a night you book the night before you land so that when you land, especially early in the morning, you have a room to, that you can go to, right? I don't want to wait until three in the afternoon, just get a hot shower after uh, 15, 20 hours on the road, right? And so, um, and not to mention a bed, you know, uh, that, that's nice as well. Uh, so, so I had a room reserved and uh, usually the travel agent notates that and, and then that's visible to the, uh, to the hotel and they know not to cancel my room reservation, but they did. There was no note, evidently nothing happened there. So I arrived and only to find out that there's no room, not only was there no room, but they couldn't give me another one because, uh, there was an, uh, another conference, not DevOps apparently, uh, that had, uh, you know, m taken all the rooms up. So, so I was, I was stranded and I just looked online and I confess, I found this, uh, this holiday in and just had terrible reviews, but it was the only thing I could get. And you know what? It's just been great. It's actually been really nice. So, um, you know, I've had all of my assumptions challenged. I, I was looking forward to coming back here. 
uh, to see all my friends. This is an amazing show. It is, you know, uh, I in Europe, you know, the for in terms of like bang for the buck, in terms of if you must see two shows per year, spring one. Uh, doesn't exist in Europe, right? We have a spring one show in the Americas and in North America and the United States, but but we do have Spring IO in Barcelona, Spain, and you know I rave about that show every year. And then the other show I would wholeheartedly endorse that I recommend anybody go to when they can is Devox, any Devox, but especially the one in Belgium, the original flagship uh, edition. So I'm a big fan, big fan. I love that show. Um, and I love the people, and and all these other things mean that I just love Antwerp now. I, it has just been amazingly pleasant to be here. I just really am so glad to be here. Uh, and you know, I I just can't. And I'm I I was I, I've seen some of the talks that were at at Devux, and I, I can tell you, I'm I'm pumped. I have I have not been um, to uh, to Devux in three years, and I've just really missed the energy, the unique vibe that you get from that. Uh, I missed hanging out with people. Last night I got to hang out with some friends, uh, Julien Dubois from Microsoft, the, uh, you know, a friend to the Spring uh, community and creator of J-Hipster, and uh, of course, uh, Laurent Dogan, who's a uh, you know, developer advocacy manager over at, uh, at Couchbase, also a friend to the Spring community. Um, and uh, we just, you know, had a grand old time. I just missed my friends. I've missed hanging out with these amazing people. Um, and uh, it's, just been, it's just been really great. And so I, besides that, I've been really busy. I've been playing with the latest and greatest in the Spring Boot uh, 3 snapshots and Spring Framework 6. Uh, and speaking of, by the by, um, you know, one of those one of those things that we're all trying to do right now is we ramp up to, uh, to, to be on track to release Spring Boot 3 by the end of, what is it, November, I think, which is, you know, like a month and a half away uh, uh, by the most optimistic ep- efforts, you know. Um, uh, one of the things we're trying to do is to just make sure all these things work, everything that can and, and we hope will work, we want to have working uh, on release day. But obviously, that's not going to be possible for everything because every other library, you know, there's a number of libraries out there uh, that we want to adapt to uh, to make work in the Gravium native image world, for example. Um, obviously, it's not going to be uh, completely trivial to get everything working in the Gravium native image world. Uh, with Spring Boot 3 because every library, you know, not all libraries out there are adapted to work with Gravium native images, right? And so um, while we could furnish the configuration required to make those libraries work for all the things that Spring Boot purports to support, uh, it's not really a natural thing for us to do. Why, you know, it's it, these, these, these configuration files, these Gravium, this Gravium metadata, uh, I think is best furnished by the libraries themselves, right? So it's best if we can contribute those configuration files to the respective projects uh, or get them to furnish them themselves or, or whatever. Or alternatively, you know, the um, there's been a effort, a concerted effort by different uh, projects in the Java ecosystem to make, uh, to s- sort of centralize a lot of configuration in uh, a central repository. It's called the Gravium Reachability Repository. And this repository is... Um, you know, this repository is just a single, it's a, it's a shared central place where we can put, uh, you know, configuration uh, for different projects in a single place. But again, this is only as a stopgap. It's a Band-Aid if, if we can't get the projects themselves, uh, for whatever reason, to host that configuration themselves. Uh, and, you know, so the goal with this repository, 
unlike Maven Central, the goal with this one is to get it to go smaller, right? We want to we want to shrink the size of the repository, uh, not grow it. You know, it'd be nice if for everything that we add there, we take away something else and restore that to the to the uh, pr projects themselves. You know, um, uh, and so then as a last you know as a last uh, gap, if that doesn't work. You know, and the thing that needs to be configured is something related specifically to the way you use that technology with Spring, and and in particular the integration in Spring. Then yes, that's a natural place for uh, Spring Boot to ship native hints and so on. So to the extent that we've we've got those kinds of issues, uh, those kinds of um, um, integrations, we have done our level head best uh, for a lot of use cases to to furnish configuration. But but even there, you know, it's just not possible to get everything out of the box, but a good deal, many things, a huge number of things just work out of the box. And as part of that, uh, I've been going, like I said, I've been going through a lot of different stuff. I've been going through various spring integration adapters, right? Spring integration is an integration project. So naturally it, it has a lot of connective uh, code, a lot of co glue code that integrates with other ecosystem technologies, other libraries, other uh, clients, uh, so you can talk to external systems like SMB and FTP and FTPS and uh, and uh, you know Zookeeper and uh, you know MQTT and uh, just whatever Kafka, you know RabbitMQ, etc. All these things, and you know what? Uh, just and it's a surprising good many things just work out of the box sometimes uh, with a minimal uh, amount of Java, you know, configuration. I have to write some hints, uh, contribute some hints to make these things work. So, for example, um. I just looked at uh, Spring integration, and uh, what was the one I just looked at? Was it? FT I think it's FTP, right? So I'm using I'm using the FTP client with that, and that just worked, right? Um, but to make it work, to have a test harness, I needed an FTP server. So I went I went over to the Apache Mina project, and even that, I have a I, I built a non-trivial but still not production worthy FTP server using the Apache Mina FTP server project embedded that inside of a Spring Boot app. And even that worked, but for some, I think it was like two or three hints that I had to contribute. It was just painless, right? Absolutely, absolutely trivial. Uh, and I've gotten things like, you know, uh, my, my goodness, what, what have I gotten working there already? Um, we've got, uh, well, I mean, JDBC, Redis, HTTP, WebFlex, all that already worked anyway. MQTT uh, worked. Uh, there was some configuration required. I've open up issues on the MQTT uh, Eclipse Paho project so that they can own that configuration rather than each person having to maintain it. The FTP stuff worked. I'm looking at SMB support right now, right, for Samba, uh, for, you know, file system mounts. Um, but just a, just a, in general, just a good deal of many things just seem to work out of the box. Truly, uh, you know, an amazing, amazing experience to just be able to go through these projects that support these sort of arcane uh, sort of ecosystem integrations and that just work. Um, it's been a pleasure, absolutely a pleasure to, to see that uh, born out, you know, I just love that. And, and uh, you know, obviously, it's I'm doing all this while traveling and while trying to keep track of all the latest and greatest. Have you been following uh, the news? Have you been following the releases? My goodness, uh, they've just released a new version of Spring Framework 6. That's feature complete, my friends. That's RC1, uh, Spring Framework 6.0, RC1. Get the bits, try it out right now start.spring.io. Uh, that version uh, is, you know, barring any major showstopper bugs, that's the thing that you'll be able to use in production, you know, like I said, at most by the end of uh, November, right? Um, and uh, we also, did you also see that we just published a blog 
sort of articulating our, uh, our, our thoughts and, and our embrace of virtual threads, aka Project Loom, uh, and especially uh, discussing the implications of that for, uh, you know, reactive programming, right? So, so there's an amazing uh, opportunity here to, to embrace virtual threads in the context of reactive programming. And, uh, you know, it's just a good blog. Check that out. Um, uh, yeah, just, just so much good stuff. Oh, and, oh, by the way, there's another blog, Marcin Grzeszek, just announced, uh, just put out a blog articulating our position on observability, the new support for observability, the u- new unified tracing and metrics API uh, powered by Micrometer uh, that's now in Spring Boot 3. That unified approach to observability is a big deal. So rather than using Spring Cloud Sleuth and Spring, uh, you know, and Micrometer, uh, you can now just use this one abstraction uh, called an observation. And um, it allows you to capture both, t- you know, samples, uh, you know, and metrics and things like that, as well as trace information, right? The same API, very, very powerful. And it's now streamlined. So all this is just on top of all the other stuff that we've done in Spring Boot, all the normal stuff that's been done in Spring Boot and Spring Framework, uh, like updating to the latest and greatest uh, uh, baseline dependencies, for example. We're now using um, Jakarta EE dependencies instead of Javax. So obviously you're going to have to move to that. And that enables, that it allows the use of, downstream dependencies like Tomcat, like Hibernate, like Jetty, et cetera, that all now use the new Jakarta namespace versions of these. Uh, uh, they, they all now use the Jakarta, AP, Jakarta EE uh, versions of these the various APIs that support, like the servlet spec and, uh, and JPA and so on. So yeah, a lot of good stuff. I'm also super excited to be at DevOps, uh, and I'm so also very looking forward to being at Java 1, I think next week, actually. It's really just a roller coaster ride this October. Um, and of course, I'm most looking forward to spring one, uh, six to eight December. That's just two months and some change from now. Uh, uh, December, 2022, right? December 6th to 8th, 2022. Uh, obviously I'll be there and all the spring team will be there. Um, you should be there, right? If you want to join us, register now, use the code S1VM2022, sorry, S1VM22, underscore advocate underscore 200. And I think it's a, I'm not sure if it's case sensitive, but probably not. Right. Um, yeah. And get you, if you use that code, you'll get 200 bucks off. I'll see, I'll make sure to put that code in the, uh, in the podcast, uh, notes as well. Uh, and, uh, on that bombshell, my goodness, um, where are we? I guess we should talk about today's show, huh? Today's going to be a good one. Today we're going to talk to my old friend, Josh Sareth. Now he's a, he's a, another in a long string of uh, Josh's who are, who are better, right? And, uh, you know, it's it's getting a little tedious. I just wish once I could have a Josh that wasn't as uh, uh, as amazing. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, this is this is yet another amazing Josh. Josh, you may know uh, from his – I don't know if you'll know them. Actually, he's, he's, he's one of those people that um, I've just had such a lovely rapport with over the decades, uh, more than a decade. Um, uh, where I first met him was in the, the Scala community, right? He was actually working on mad scientist kind of stuff like making SBT work, right? SBT is the Scala build tool. Uh, and a lot of the usability, a lot of the amazing um, usability in that tool is the, 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 the fruit of his labor, right? The, uh, over the years. And now he works at Google and he's working on all sorts of cool stuff there as well. And we'll talk about all that in depth. Uh, but suffice it to say, uh, this man has has lost and forgotten more information about 
usability in build tools than I think most of us will ever have. Uh, and so it's just a true privilege to have him uh, come on the show. And of course, we talk about open telemetry, yet another dimension of observability, also well supported in Spring Boot 3. And it was just really great to talk to him about everything. Just really great. I, I just, I missed, uh, you know, he's another one of those people I used to bump into all the time. And then the virus took away all that. So just to be able to have a conversation with him to catch up. Ah, yeah, it was just great. I hope you uh, enjoy it and learn something from it as I did. Um, you know, remember, he's one of those people where, you know, it's just rare to be able to have, have somebody like him uh, just give us a brain dump on something because that's a lot of brain, right? It's a lot of brain and I just really appreciate it. So enjoy my friends. Yes or no? no? I don't know. I don't know how to start. <laughs> I don't know how to start this conversation, but uh, I guess we could just start with the normal pro forma stuff. Can you introduce yourself uh, so that people know who you are, and so that I don't butcher it? Because I will otherwise. It's fine. I uh, my name is also Josh. By the way, continuing what? my long running streak of having better Joshes on the show. Like there's been a number of you, and uh, I just want one to be crappy, and it just hasn't happened yet. I, 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 I can be the crappy Josh. That's fine. Um, my last name is Surrett. Um, so uh, you might know me. Uh, I was involved with the Scala community for a good bit. I wrote a book called Scala Depth. I wrote a book called SBT in Action. I was like the, uh, for a while, I was the manager for like the, the tooling support around Scala as part of uh, Lightbend or uh, back in the day, we called it TypeSafe. Um, and then most recently I'm with Google, I'm working on Google cloud and I'm doing observability. Um, and I'm one of the technical committee members for the open telemetry project in CNCF now. Right. Uh, what do you think of Basil? Like coming from SBT, what's your from Basil. Okay. Interesting. Um, all right. Do you like monolithic repositories? Not so much. If, if you like monolithic repositories, Basil's the tool for you. Yeah. That's um, yeah, I think there's a lot of good concepts in it. A lot of really core, like my favorite thing about Basil is the abstraction layer, I think is done well for what they wanted. Right. Um, this is the build gets tool authorized by Google, by the way, for people. Who oh, yeah, yeah. It's a build tool. Um, there's a bunch of build tools like it with funnier names that they could have. Twitter has used, one, Like right? Pants. Yeah. Pants, Twitter, yeah. Twitter had one called Pants. Yeah. You can't beat that for name, really. Like. Do you have your pants with you or not? Like, you, know, <laughs> you don't don't build without your pants. No, which is fair, good advice, I think. Really, I yeah yeah yeah. yeah. I mean, we could all use pants when we build. Right. Um, but yeah, so so Basil, it's 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 basically a uh, you can only have one version of any dependency across the whole build. Is like one of the limitations, but it's basically a, a, a an abstraction that's similar to old school make files. Right. In its core. But it made a declarative syntax that I felt like is a decent abstraction on top of that, where you say, like, hey, build a library, build a binary, build okay. an NPM or uh, sorry, what RPM. That's yeah. what I meant. Um, you know, and you say, like, build this and here's your your dependencies and it does it. And it under the scenes creates like make file like dependency tree. Um, where it gets frustrating for me for example is um it focuses on item potent builds what does that mean okay same input uh, or what 
Yeah, like like I same input, same output. Yeah. So what's interesting here is I would all prefer impotent. What? I thought builds. What? I don't know of a system that doesn't produce idempotent builds in that case. Oh, oh, there's a lot of cases here. So incremental compilation is where it frustrates me. Oh. So it will only recompile a particular edge when it needs to. But you know, one of the things SBT would do is we would actually track dependencies at the API level inside of your classes. And we would only recompile classes if they if the API hasn't changed. So you could say compile one class file without mm -hmm. recompiling a whole bunch of downstream classes. Whereas in Bazel, it would be like the whole bundle or nothing. So wait, so if you change anything in a project, it would just recompile the whole thing? Or it would it it so oh, any of anything in the edge. So it would look at the input set of files to that edge, the output set of files to that edge, and it will recompile it. Is an edge like a class library or what's the it depends the it, it depends how you define your build. So you could have it be like a particular package in Java, or you could have it be like 12 packages. It depends on how big you defined your grouping of things. So right? it's gonna monitor this grouping of things, and if anything changes, it recompiles everything. It'll recompile that particular artifact, right? Okay, the external and artifact. then yeah, yeah. And then downstream it'll check to see if the artifact has changed to decide whether or not to recompile. Now, one of the things they did, which makes it a little faster for Java, is it compiles two outputs for any like library you make. One output is like the jar file, mm -hmm. and the other output is like an interface file, where it's literally oh, like an index. All of your interfaces with an empty implementation that throws an exception, uh -huh. and and then they can hash code that thing and see if the API changed from that sense. So cool. It can do a little bit of incremental compilation, but like one of the things we had with SBT, because we track so deeply, I could say like, hey, run any unit test that touches a method that's changed in the last compilation. And you just run this like tilde test and it would just do it. And so it was so freaking nice yeah. when you're in that magic spot where all that stuff is working. Yeah. But then if you weren't using Scala, well, sorry. Oh, right. Yeah. Is it possible to use SBT from, I, I mean, Scala as the build language is fine, right? Who cares? Like people use Groovy with Gradle not knowing or using Groovy in other contexts all the time, you know? Um, uh, yeah, it worked okay with Java. Like I think a lot of the tracking was in place. There were a few things that I think could have been better. Um, but if you were doing say, like someone added C++ support to SBT at one point. Oh, cool. It worked and, yeah. and like it would track things, but that level of depth for like the in it, the interactive bits were kind of not there. Oh, that's, well, that's a pity. Yeah. Okay, so I just wonder, I, I've heard people from the end, like people either get, uh, like people leave the, the, the Zooglers, they leave Google and they come into, they fall into one of two camps. One is, you know, basil all the things. And, and the other is I've been in a cult and I need to learn how the rest of the world's building software until they learn something else, right? Uh, and they become ardent anti-supporters of that, you know? Um, to, yeah, for, for me, I personally don't use Basil for any project that I do outside of Google. Mm -hmm. And that's mostly because I don't have monolithic repositories and I don't yeah. want to add more monolithic repositories as much as I can. To the world. <laughs> it's like the world's hard yeah, enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you think of GitHub as the monolithic repository we all love. Right. Sure. Very long time to build, though. 
yeah, but you're not you're not like directly depending on head from every single GitHub project, and that's the thing that is a little bit more frustrating, right? To deal with in practice, right. I'll do that at work. Right. I don't want to do that for my personal project. I'd rather have like a stable dependency version I lock down to for well, yeah. a, a particular project and have it be different for each one. And as with all things, I think social dynamics inform what you can get away with in the technology. At work, if something's broken, you can send somebody a message saying, hey, you know, yeah. broke the build, please help. Uh, whereas at in your private, personal, spare time things, you can't like insist that somebody get back to their desk and fix a problem. Um, yeah, and, and like, so open source, we're an open telemetry, right? We have some dependencies between projects. Yeah, oh yeah. And the Go ecosystem so far that we have is a little bit monolithic in, at times because they made it easy to basically treat GitHub as a repo. Right, right. Um, whereas like for, for the, the Java side of it, they can say, oh, there's a new version of the protocol out, like version, you know, we went from 1.1 to 1.2 with minor changes. They can right. decide when to pull it in. They don't have to do it right away. You know, right. and that's, that flexibility is important and things like Dependabot um, are magical and awesome right. for keeping dependencies up to date, but also giving you that like CI hook and things to make it easier to, to manage and deal with. I, I don't know. I just, I always felt like um, I either lean into having tons of repositories and tons of, of integrated components with different life cycles, right. or I lean into five different things all slammed into the same life cycle. You know, right. It's a and there's different. Yeah, but there's different trade-offs depending on which one you're doing. If you if yeah. you do want that, like everything releases kind of simultaneously thing, Basil's awesome. Mm -hmm. I think we. I mean, we have that. We have that. Uh, you know, in the Spring ecosystem, we are lots of different teams working on lots of different projects, and so some of those projects release at different cadences. And so our initial assumption, in barring some other insight, is to to keep them separate, right? Things should be separate mm -hmm. until otherwise proven otherwise. But sometimes it does happen that these different modules that used to be separate GitHub orgs, not orgs, repositories, then get com compressed into one big one, you know, uh, because you, yeah. you realize that the, the people that, while the people that needed to bootstrap each individual module might've been different before, the people that are gonna end up maintaining it over the longer tail, maybe that's just a, a, a smaller set of people and it makes sense to keep everything in one code base or whatever. Uh, and you can, and you can, and the nice thing about Maven is that you can do both, right? You can just change the version, Maven or Gradle or SPT or whatever. You can change the version, and suddenly that's the new, latest version. And if you're just wanting, if you're interested in that, pull it down. If not, who cares, you know? And dependent bot will tell you. That's the other thing is you don't have to constantly ask. You, know, you can just be notified. Hey, you should upgrade. Great, thanks. I will. Here's a PR. Yeah. Now I should clarify to listeners, I guess, my Basil oh. knowledge because I think the most recent version of Basil, as of like a year ago. They've started making improvements to being able to pull in another Basil build as a like sub build kind of a thing. Whoa. Just when I yeah, so they were working on that. It's just when I tried it, when I used it in practice, it was mildly infuriating to deal with. Uh, if you had like the same dependencies between two things you were consuming, right? Um, yeah, wow. that's interesting. I, I but th try. that is an area they're trying to fix. So yeah. you know, who knows? Right? It could be awesome today, and I don't know. Is there Okay, so I, I guess I don't really all that much care. Like, I'm not a pro Maven person. I'm just a pro. I don't care. Just as long as I can import my code into my IDE, then I don't care. So I just don't care. So what is that story? Honestly, about? like, so I don't know if you remember this, but when SBT first came out, um, 
I should say when it first released the version 11, dot yeah. 11, which was the current incarnation, everyone hated it. And the reason why, in my opinion, is because SBT made you care about builds. Yeah. And guess what? Most people just don't give it like, no, I don't no. care. I just want it to work. Yeah, please. Like make it simple, make it work. If I can't copy paste from Stack Overflow, it's not worth my time as a build tool. For real. Yeah. Exactly. So that's what we that's what we focused on for SBT, actually. Okay. Like that specific use case. Like if I can't copy paste from Stack Overflow and answer, that's a problem. Make that work. Make it work seamlessly. Make it work easily. Wow. See, this is the thing you get with uh, with Gradle a lot of times is you get these things that because it's code, right? You're actually writing a program when you write a build. And so mm -hmm. you can't just, you know, as as flexible as Groovy or Kotlin are you can't just put random elements anywhere sometimes, you know, it, it has to be in a certain place in a certain scope and a certain thing. And a lot of the answers you see are like only partial answers. They assume you understand they have to go into this higher scope, you know, plugins or whatever, you know, just like, it's just, it's just, it requires knowledge of the API and you have to realize it's an API. Um, yep. Yeah. Maybe, having used Gradle and Anger a lot lately, um, oh. I'll say two things. So one is there's that aspect of it is pure groovy. And you can't just slap pure Groovy anywhere and have it work. Right. Um, like we made a special compiler for SBT where we hijacked the Scala compiler to make this work. So you could slap a, a setting anywhere in the file. Wow. Um, and, and then moved to that syntax. Um, but the second thing is there's things that got added to Gradle over time. Like it's evolved over, over the course of its oh, years. Sure. Um, and it added this really robust like caching incremental system. Right the syntax to interact with it is just non-intuitive and kind of on top of the way, like there's the way you normally think about it when you first copy paste, then there's these other 12 things you have to add <laughs> to get that aspect to work. And right. like, I always forget those 12 things. I might do one and not the other two. Right. And that's where I start to run into friction where it's like, you know what? I don't care about build tools anymore. I did build tools. I just want them to work now, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think we're, maybe that's what it is. Maybe that's where we are, my friend. Maybe, maybe the end of the uh, the universe is we've all accepted the, the build tool of choice and things are fine now, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just trying to re-implement Pong. All right. In, 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 <laughs> on, on, on like a website, you know, distributed Pong. Like, let me, let me make my dumb game. <laughs> oh, the game. I was like, wait, you're talking about the game? Well, yeah. Okay. Yes. I yeah. did uh, re-implemented that. Well, okay. So pants, basil. Have you tried pants? I don't know. It's probably the same. I haven't, I haven't used pants. I'm oh, sorry. I'm wearing pants today, sure. but, but I haven't used the build tool pants for yeah. since like 2000. Oh, oh man. Yeah. Sometime in the tens. I mean, so at least, at least five years. Dude, my, I'm glad you just said five years. My kid refers to the decades in which in my, my formative years, my day, my early my 80s and 90s life, she refers to that as the late 20, 20th century, and I hate it. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> like a dinosaur. Yeah. Um, yeah. Anyway, so, okay. Yeah, I don't know. Okay, good. So, we got built. That, you worked on SBT, which I always thought was like a special kind of magic, and you just confirmed it by saying that you built your own compiler, which is insane. What is going on here and why? It, yeah, I should clarify. It, it was... We didn't have to build a full compiler. We just had to adapt the existing Scala compiler. 
So it is it is Scala syntax and it uses the Scala compiler under the hood, but the the actual parser, the way the, the .svt files are parsed is a special adaptation of a Scala compiler to make sure that that copy paste stuff would be successful, right? Right, that's amazing, it's amazing. Like, I had no idea. When did this all happen? Was this like five years ago or more? Ooh, yeah, that was a while ago. I think around 2011. 2011. Wow. Okay. So it's been a decade. So yeah. Okay. That was. Um, I lost audio. Did I? Is it just me? Can you hear me now? Yeah, I can hear you now. Oh yeah. Okay. okay. That was more than a decade ago. That's a long time ago, right? Like it. Wow. Yeah. Well, okay. I feel bad. Maybe I should have put more effort into understanding SBT. I used to bother you about it. I used to be like, hey, I've got questions, and we'd sit there and you'd explain it, and I'd try, and it was fine. I just didn't. I didn't put enough cognitive effort into it. I think. Yeah, the, the one thing that SPT did, I think the other the other complicated bit of it was uh, it had this multi-dimensional setting model. Multi-dimensional. Yeah, yeah. multi-dimensional. So you could say like, hey, yeah, here's here's the source directory for compiling Scala code for production. Here's the source directory for compiling Scala code for tests. Here's the source directory for compiling Java code for tests that I use in this exact binary. Um, and exact binary, what do you mean? So like we called it scope, but basically there was a, a single source directory uh, setting that you could configure, right? right? And by default, if you ask for a source directory, you just get the default. But I could ask in any scope and the scope was a multi-dimensional array of things that I could attach to. So I could say, hey, in the compile configuration for this binary I'm building, give me the source directory. Okay. No one in their right mind used that. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. We, so, so you could define like a different build target of like, oh, I'm going to build um, it. This, this might be more important for native. So you could say, I'm going to build an exe and I'm going to build a, um, a bin Jerry. file for, for Linux or something, right? Okay. Um, and so you could have those two, and you could have actually different source directories for each based on the task, if you wanted. Okay. It's just like a Maven again, profile, kind of? It's almost like a Maven profile, but a little more confusing. And I'm having trouble describing it because it's like you almost have to interact with it to get a feel for what it really is and what it really means. Yeah, I think I'm missing something big. Uh, but it sounds interesting. I, I mean, I can see this is It's an interesting, very powerful feature. Yeah. But it confused the heck out of everyone who walks into SBT to the point where most people just give up. We even we even made like a visualization where you could graph like the inheritance of these things. So you could be like, oh, what is what's the setting here? And say, like, my settings here, which is inherited from this, inherited from this, inherited from this, right? Oh. Um, oh. Yeah, like any task graph, you could visualize the whole graph inside of SBT because we had it, you know, in memory. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, that. Sounds really robust. It seems like a lot of that stuff would be having a good focus on that would be nice for Maven too, you know, like get, making that stuff a little bit more transparent. Oh, yeah, Maven, I used to maintain the Scala plugin for Maven. And the problem yeah. with Maven is there's a guaranteed life cycle in which things run. Right. But you don't have the ability to have fine grained dependencies between things. Between, so between what? Between Days. like actions attached to a life cycle. Okay, so a compile like a, an action attached to a compile phase versus 
Exactly. Right. So if I wanted to guarantee the Scala action runs after the Java action, how do I do that? Oh, you're saying if we have like three attached to the same phase, how do you do ordering? Yeah. How do you do ordering? Um, you have to look at how, you know, how Maven like composes all that XML into one big blob and then executes right. it. Well, it's the order in the XML blob, but if I'm a plugin, right? Yeah. The exactly. order someone includes me determines where I show up in that action hierarchy. Oh. And so the order you list plugins could change your build dramatically from working to broken. That's fragile. That's that's what that's what, what an example of where a copy and paste just doesn't work from Stack Overflow, yeah. Yeah, so so <laughs> right, you have to like you have to force everything to work together. So we we had this issue where, you know, we almost would hijack the Java compiler, right? And redo its work in the Scala plugin or and like completely replace it as opposed to try to have a dependency. Like that plugin dependency part was really hard to do. Um, SBT, we confused the hell out of new people, but yeah. we made plugin dependencies work, that's for sure. <laughs> it's like, we just did these things to mix and match. There, there's another, you know, I was just talking to uh, uh, Andy Clement, who, um, was it Andy or somebody? I think it's probably Andy. We were talking about Visual Studio Code plugins, and that, that's a whole kettle of fish, right? That, that it's the, the idea is that you have one uh, server, one uh, language language server process that runs out of out of process and that responds to a particular document type. But in our mm -hmm. case, we provide a Spring language server, which needs the Java language server to do its work, and then it, it enriches that. So that so for the so it's normally one to one, but we're actually trying to shoehorn ourselves into the Java one so that we can both be present to answer questions that might go beyond core Java. Yeah. You know? um, one of the things I never got to build. But we actually had on our docket was uh, making SBT be a language server. Oh, that'd be so smart. That'd be awesome. Right? So when you have like a, yeah. yeah. So because because we know what languages you're using, we could spin up the underlying ones and mix them together. Right. Um, yeah, and and it's it's uh you know when I when I think when you think of an IDE and the whole notion of language server, you know there's a build server protocol too, right? Right. That got that they they're trying to advertise for the IDE as well. Your build tool is the engine of an IDE in right. addition to something that makes artifacts you can push to production. Um, and those two spaces really bleed together pretty pretty horribly sometimes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Having that, being able to outsource the compilation and validation of the code you're working on would be magic. And that way, suddenly your, your regular text editor could be as good as your IDE, you know, like uh, yeah. that's half, I mean, one of the, hardest parts of, of like the language server for Java uses the Eclipse uh, JDT, I think it is, the, the compiler that's built yeah, into yeah. it. Because it's faster, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's good for interactive validation of what you're doing, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so that kind of stuff, getting that right and just putting it in one place so that the whole community can work on it. Uh, please, let's do that, you know, like. That's another. It's done a great job. Another fun story, actually. So Scala 2 yeah. has a separate compiler that they use for interaction that is designed and optimized around recompiling very quickly and around getting symbols out to IDEs as fast as possible. But right. you literally can't build class files from it. <laughs> um, and then there's a, there's a compiler which you use for production. When they went and redid uh, the compiler architecture for Scala 3, it's the same thing. 
you basically, the compiler goes to a certain phase and then exposes everything for the IDE, but you can go all the way deep as well. Um, but it's interesting, right? There were, there were, we, had to, we had to go re-architect a separate wow. compiler to do IDEs well. <laughs> wow. And, and that's, that's, that's actually kind of common. Like the Eclipse Java compiler, right, is not the core Java compiler from Oracle Sun. Um, it's different because it was architected for that interactive use case. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's a good piece of software and it's just, the problem is that if every IDE has something similar, and I'm sure JetBrains has their own as well, right? Like that's a lot they of work. Do. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. so being able to share that would be a huge deal. And for Java, it's one thing, but because before with Java, if you got it right, you could just leave it alone for five years until the next Java version came out. But now it's every six months, right? Like there's yeah. something. Uh, and so with Aspect J, for example, we, you know, Aspect J is a superset of Java syntax, right? It's a compiler. Well, that needs to be changed every six months now. Like there's new stuff being changed every six months. With Scala, I can imagine the situation is far worse because it's a much richer syntax uh, that's still growing, you know? Um, yeah, cool. well, um, yeah, the, the good news is most of the changes are now happening in Scala 3 where they have that combined compiler. Oh, yeah. But they, they, you know, again, it's it's the notion of if you if you're if you want to make your own language, yeah, I, I would first of all go go do something else. Yeah, um, <laughs> but if but if you're really gung ho, like like things to think about are you can architect your compiler to be amenable to IDEs out of the gate, and right. that's it's one of those you know how like the you ain't gonna need it mantra. This yeah. is the opposite for compilers. You are gonna need it. IDEs are such a big part. It's such a big component and just, you know, any kind of static analysis. So yeah. architecting your compiler to have like up to static analysis and then backend compilation is so important. So important. Wow. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think a lot of people look at, I mean, there's very few people who are qualified to write compilers. And I kind of imagine that what you're talking about is like next level compiler stuff. Like, cause I read the dragon book. I, you know, I built a few, uh, basic uh, compilers and things like that, but nothing like what you're like to the point where you're talking about. That's like next level. That's like uh, build a compiler and also make it so that it plugs into random IDEs in a, in a way that will work for all of them. You know, it's hard. They should hire you. This is one of those things where you know people just take this for granted. Well, there's also knowing what to say and then knowing how to do it, right? Like, yeah. Uh, anyway, I um. You know, and I think this is probably true for Spring in general. Like, there's things in Spring that you probably weren't aware of as necessary components. Yeah. That had to get added after the fact and kind of oh, built sure. in. You know, yeah. um, where if you were starting and you're like, let me make a web framework, right? Yeah. Then you're like, oh well, actually, here's some use cases that you don't normally think about web frameworks that are at really required. You know. Right. That that fits in. And then if you go enterprise Java framework, I'm sure it's really a big list. Well, so this is, the, that's the other thing is I, there's, you know, this happens all the time, right? Same thing for Hibernate, right? People come out and they say, oh, we've got this new framework that's the, the spring killer, the Hibernate killer or whatever. Uh, are you kidding? You know, how many decades of, and millions of hours have been poured into these code bases? The little use cases that make it work for literally millions and millions of people all around the planet. Like it, just you, to take that for granted is a fool's. Aaron, you know, like you, you're yeah. just discounting stability that has managed for people for decades. You know, it's, it's not yeah. like we didn't have these ideas before, you know, it's not like you're the first person to ever think, Oh, wouldn't it be nice if I could do that? You know, there's a reason yeah. 
you know, there's ah, so, so arrogant. And it's been that way every, every, I mean, look, competition is great. Obviously spring is getting better and better by the day because of the competition. But to, if your core conceit is the, you know, the, it's fundamentally wrong, then that's not going to ever work. You know, that's the wrong attitude to come into any, like same thing for the SBT right. versus Gradle versus Maven. Not, not, none of them are fundamentally wrong. They're, they're just, they're just different and they work for use cases, you know? Um, yeah. So I don't know. Yes. Yeah. So, and you have, you almost have to be slightly crazy to do something brand new. Yeah. Um, not just slightly. I mean, it's, it, there's a heaping of arrogance and hope mixed in there, yeah. you know? Related, I'm doing this open telemetry thing. Okay. So that's why I wanted to talk to you, but I was so glad we could talk about this other stuff too. So you were at uh, Lightbin TypeSafe early days. That's how I first met you. I would bump into you and you're my, you're one of my, um, you're, you're in the rarefied air of some of my favorite mad scientists. Uh, and I would just talk to you and, and uh, uh, at random shows and, and you talk until my eyes bled and, uh, and, and then I'd run we away. Had a lot of, I think we had good discussions and weren't we in a script bowl together or not? I don't remember. Maybe, I don't remember. I feel like, I, I feel like there was one time, well, anyway, I remember seeing you talk an awful lot, like with, from, from these fun. conversations. But All I right. will say that the bar conversations were the best okay. compared to anything the else. The best, yeah. 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 I, I miss, I was just thinking about that actually. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to a J Focus next year, right? And I, I like, I haven't been to Sweden in, since 2019, right? Like, uh, oh, wow. Yeah. Since the, since yeah. the pandemic, you know? And um, I was just like, I had some great memories in Scandinavia with you, with James, with, uh, you know, Jonas and, and Victor and all these other wonderful people from that, that, yeah. that time and that place, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. Memories. Um, anyway, I, I, I was, I'm really glad that, because you came from this incredible company that's doing amazing things, that's still doing amazing things. We talked a little bit before the show about how, uh, you know, it's, it's sometimes easy to forget that there are common grounds between these two different ecosystems, you know, and uh, they're really amazing. Like when these things work together, work well together, they're just phenomenal. Uh, and now you're at Google. Uh, I think you just maybe maybe you get bored and decide to slum it like what's the why would you go to google from such a cool company like lightband i love uh, yeah so um let's see the lightband and uh typesafe were were like really near and dear to me and and mm -hmm. kind of like um it was you know it's like working on your your hobby project and stuff but um <laughs> i had to i had to move for a few reasons some of them were personal Mm -hmm. um which which you may or may not know about but it's uh anyway so but also i had this pretty cool opportunity at google to work on google assistant and on voice related technologies and i was a star trek nerd i'll be honest the yeah. idea of talking to a computer and telling it what to do was just a right. little too much to resist because the opportunity i had was very cool and we did some really really cool conversational stuff um in in the team that i was on um, but eventually, so I did that for about four years at Google. Um, and it was, it was, yeah, I, I, there's things I can't say, um, that we built, but it was very cool. Um, and it got to the point where I was missing the open source, you know, like mm -hmm. I was missing the open world. I was missing like other things to do. And so I got that, that itch of like, okay, let's start looking around for other opportunities. This, this conversation stuff is really cool, but I think maybe the bit that was mine to contribute is done now. Yeah. Time to pass on that torch and look for something else. And there was this opportunity to work on 
observability and open telemetry. And, you know, I'm looking into this ecosystem and looking into what they're trying to build. And it felt like that same kind of foundational stuff we were trying to do with Scala and bringing yeah. functional programming to Java, right? right. Um, which I'd say bringing functional programming to Java was a resounding success yeah. um, overall. So happy with that. Yeah, um, yeah. This observability stuff is like, we're trying to bring observability to the masses and commoditize it for everybody and make it available. Right. What's cool for Spring Boot you already started doing this ahead of us. And so it's a simpler job of just let's integrate with what you have. Right. right. And we're not trying to make it competitive. Yeah. Quick question. Did you have any nods or code names or anything related to Major Barrett, the, the woman who voiced the computer on Star Trek? In your... <laughs> How did you know? How did you I don't know? know? I'm asking, like, did it happen? Yeah. It... Got it. Like... Uh, yeah, there's there's like a I don't know how much I'm allowed to say, but there was a core system called Magil. Oh, it's, Magil. that makes yeah. my heart bigger and happier. Yeah, oh, it cool. was. Do, yeah, like there were not a lot of us were Star Trek nerds, but a good bit of us were, and it was uh, it was just really cool to watch the computer speak back to you. You know, oh. like almost natural. Oh man, did that feel so good? So uh, cool. Wow. Yeah, I want that. Like, uh, let me know when that becomes a thing I can buy. Uh, you know. If it does, <laughs> well, you can try out the Google Assistant today to see see where things are. But oh, yeah. Google Assistant, okay, yeah, yeah. Like now, people mostly use it as just a DJ. So, ah, <laughs> uh, okay. Is that the uh, Google? What's that set top speaker? The, the Google, yeah, the Google Home. Like you can turn lights on and off, and and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. I should buy one of those. I, I, I've, uh, I, 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 every few years, I go out and buy something else from the other ecosystems. Like I'm, I've drank enough Apple Kool-Aid. Oh, to... so you got like a Siri or an Alexa or something. Yeah, like that. yeah. which is, is not yeah. great, but that's also kind of the reason why I liked it is like, it's just not that, it, it, it's not doing very much, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, whereas I, I, I and I, I, I don't try things with it that will have no reason, I have no business expecting to work. Like I, it, you can try things with it, but it's not gonna work. So you don't try. You just go to your phone and manipulate it mentally. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and I was trying to make those things work. Like, let's just, yeah, what if want. we made it work? Yeah. That'd be awesome, right? Uh, yeah. I just don't know. My, because my family and I, we're all, I don't want to play tech support, you know? So with uh, the Alexa, <laughs> the Alexa was a problem, right? Alexa was like, we'd say something and sometimes it would work and it'd be like, oh, that's magic. And then it, and then it wouldn't work. It's like, okay, well, now we've got to figure it out. But this, there's no, it just doesn't work. Don't even bother. Just use the... Uh, Use the phone, you know, for things. Like, I, I hear you on tech support. I, I had a lot of Google Home tech support when we were uh, in our heyday, like right when it oh. came out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because I got my whole family one. I was like, hey, look, I can finally <laughs> tell you about stuff I've been doing. Like, let's all try it out. And then uh, better, I can have it tell you. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, I forgot. Like tech support comes with that. That's OK. Yeah. Never live with your betas, you know, uh, unless you have to. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. Or, bit, or no, wait, don't make your family live with your babies. That's the right way to put it. We should eat our own dog food. But the family, eh, they're innocent in all this, you know? <laughs> Let them make their own mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the observability thing, yeah, man, that is like super hot sauce right there because you, you just you just hit it right on the head, which is, yeah, we, we care about observability in the Spring ecosystem. We've had tracing. We've had metrics for, you know, most of, most of the last decade. Uh, and, and there's been a number of different standards. It's like that XKCD uh, cartoon about, okay, let's, we have 10 competing standards. Now we have 11 competing standards, you know, like 
Uh, and so yeah. we've always just had our proprietary thing. It's open source, so to the extent that that's still proprietary, I don't know. But we've had our own little thing that works for the users, and people are using it in production. And every now and then, somebody comes along and says, oh, we've got this new thing. So open telemetry is, is new, but there's also open tracing, was it? Uh, uh, right? There was open tracing, and yeah. there was, so actually, open telemetry is the open tracing community yep. and the open census community. Yeah, there's open census also from Google, right? Like that was, there's just been well, a lot open of tracing wasn't, open tracing was from ex-Googlers at some right. other companies. Right. Open census was from Google. I remember that, yeah. Those two both predate me, by the way. Um, right. And then those merged together to, to form open telemetry as like, let's, you know, let's stop making a, a different standard. So those are actually marked as deprecated move to open right. telemetry, both well, of them, yeah. Which is great. And and before that, there was also, uh, um, what is that called? What is the thing that Zip can use? Brave, right? The Brave abstraction yeah. for tracing. So there's just been a number of like, use this generic thing and it'll solve the problem. I think Otel is like the one thing that seems like it'll seems like it'll go the distance, right? I see enough support and enough consistency in the messaging year after year now where I'm, I'm finding yeah. it so comfortable. I mean, the big difference between I think Otel and those other solutions was Otel managed finally to deal with the, the, the thing that's less talked about in open source, which is the politics of it. Um, yes. Open telemetry has a lot of big names behind it. Yeah. But if you think about it, it's got AWS, Google, and Microsoft backing it. Right. Yep. So you got cloud providers. Yeah. It has a, a bunch of the big observability names. It's got Splunk. Right. It had Datadog. It has um, uh, uh, Lightstep. It had, and I don't want to ignore anyone. It's got the the new hipper ones like Honeycomb. Right. You know, right. where they're like, hey, here's a new way to do everything. Right. So it's got the startups. It's got the big incumbents. It's got the cloud. So it it's got that momentum of Everybody wants to just stop inventing a new protocol and, and actually, you know, align on this. What what we need to do is just keep that momentum going and, and make it, you know, practical and usable and all that. You know, like not make an EJB2, make a spring. You know yes. what I'm saying? Well said, yeah. sir. Well done. Okay. Paychecks on the mail. Um, no, that's 100%. Like, and obviously the, uh, the, the situation, I think, for observability is more pronounced now than it has ever been, the, the need for it, for a couple of reasons. One is we've got more moving parts in most production systems nowadays. So there's just more room for gaps and errors and problems and bugs and failures. Um, naturally, more surface area equals more, more bugs. And then two, especially in the context of native, GraalVM native images, Java agents don't work well, right? Mm -hmm. If at all. So you need application level instrumentation. It can't be like a thing that runs underneath your app. Your app has to be aware of it, at least to the extent that it's on the class path and integrated. So Otel is an API. It's a library. It's a client you can use to talk to different things with a consistent shape, right? And uh, yeah. Spring makes Spring is great at letting you have things in the class path that you don't see, but that just do things for you without your in involvement, you know? Um, yeah. And so and this is great. Otel does have a Java agent Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, on top of its API. Yeah, uh, that you can use with it. But like, if you're in Spring, man, it just do it Spring has everything baked in. Yeah, exactly. use that hook. Yeah, yeah. And but and hey, use Otel for all the things around Spring. Like, nice. use it for your Postgres. Use yeah. it for if you're doing a, like an HA proxy or Nginx front end or something. Like, use it right. there. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's now consistent and and 
Yeah. Because you're using Hotel, you can take your app and go to nat native. Because uh, mm -hmm. that's a big thing. It's like, if you can't observe, if you can't instrument your application in production, it's not going to production, period. That's the end of the discussion at 99% of the enterprises, right? Uh, yeah. It's not, even a, it's not even worth considering. So if this is a dead end, you don't, you don't even bother going down the road, right? Um, yeah. But now with Hotel being a going concern that everybody can agree upon in the way that like SLF4J has kind of become, you know, uh, I love it. I'm a big fan. Yeah, there's there's like some cool studies that have been done too. Like, um, so this is a fun one that I think is somewhat obvious, but you okay. know, if your company is unable to handle the operational load of what's running in production, releasing software faster doesn't help. Oh, it works. <laughs> right? It compounds. Yeah. Yeah, it just compounds that problem. But if you have like the ability to debug errors, to catch them ahead of time, you know, get an alert and go handle it, figure out where the bug is, redirect traffic, like it just makes that aspect so much smoother. And then you can okay. rapidly build and develop and do all your GitOps stuff. And now you're efficient. 100%. Okay, let's talk low level. Let's like explain like I'm fine. Sure. Let's, let's go down to the absolute basics here. So we can walk through people what this means for them, okay? And and I'll fast. I'll preface this with saying we support Hotel and the Spring ecosystem through, mm -hmm. for example, the Spring Cloud um, Sleuth integration and, and so on. Well, and and micrometer, yeah. And micrometer, yes. Uh, the, yeah. the facing infometrics. Okay, so that's part one. Part two is let's talk about that basic st story. I've got an application. It's a web. It's an HTTP controller that takes uh, a name and returns hello name. That's it. That's all I know in the world is I get a web server, it's an app, take, take some requests that come in, data goes out. What, what, when we talk about observability, what do I want to see here? And then why is Hotel that thing? All right. So I'm going to walk you through the, what I consider the observability journey for people. Yes, please. So step one, uh, I print hello world, but I log, hey, I got a request. I printed hello world. Uh -huh. And then... I start hitting that refresh button and I check my logs and see, okay, yeah, it's it's making it to this app. Yeah, cool. All right. I can observe and that, right? At this point, do you deploy a warehouse full of Hadoop clusters so they can process the logs? Or what's your like? Yeah, no, no. You're just like, can I see the logs? Okay. Like, okay. Like, like, like I hit, I hit refresh and it says, you know, 401 unauthorized. And I go look at the log and it's like, yeah, hey, someone put a security credential thing here and you're not uh, allowed to talk or whatever. It's like, oh, okay, cool. But like the ability to read logs and debug what the hell's going on in that thing is like huge. step one. Yeah, yeah that's the, step the first one. debugger was hello, you know. It, yeah, I mean, like we all do Printland debugging, right? But in the in the microservice cloud context, it the Printland doesn't go locally. It no. goes somewhere and I need to be able to get to it, right? Right. Um, Right. So now step two is uh, I have the service out there and people love looking at Hello World. I wake up in the morning, I drink my coffee, I watch my Hello World. Question. When you mentioned the yeah. logs go somewhere, are we talking about things like uh, syslog? Uh, you know, that kind Could of thing. Syslog, about? You know, I'm talking about like a data store. So I'm talking about like a Splunk or a Google Cloud logging okay. or you like, go. you know, um, you know, the, the, there could be a default cloud provider place they sit. There could be, if it's in my local cluster, maybe it's in a text file somewhere I can read. So somewhere I have access to it. Yeah. 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 Where observability comes into play is you're trying to put it somewhere where you have like a global access to it, regardless of where it's running. Right. So, yeah. But it, it's got to be somewhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good. Um, 
Right. So the next thing is, you know, people wake up, they drink their coffee, they look at their hello world, it makes them smile, they move on with their day. Um, <laughs> but we don't know if that use case is working all the time. So what we what we do is we instrument this now with, say, a metric that says that will start a timer, right, when the request comes in and end a timer when the request goes out and record the amount of time that request took and report that to a metric database of so saying, okay, here's the average latency I'm seeing from this thing, uh -huh. right? And I can go look at that and say, cool, like we are sending hello world in like a half a second. And we did some business analysis. And if we send it in a half second, people are really happy. If it's a whole second, people are really unhappy. And so you wanna keep people happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have this, this dashboard of like, okay, here's what my latency looks like. Here's my click-through rate or here's my error rate or here's, you know, um, then the step after that, which usually is kind of correlated is I put an alert, right? If you see a whole bunch of errors, let me know ahead of time. So I don't get some customer calling customer support saying the website's down and I can't get my hello world giggle, right? I right. want hello world all the time alert the team so they can fix the hello world server, right? Now, again, so make this concrete. When you talk about a uh, metric server, you think talking about like Graphite and Grafana and uh, Prometheus and Atlas and- uh, Yeah, Datadog Prometheus, and, right. And so there's like Datadog, Chronosphere, you know, I have to mention Google Cloud Monitoring. You know, sure, yeah. Um, right, but but like those, those kinds of systems. Um, it's not stack driver anymore. It's called Google Cloud Monitoring, but it used oh, to be called stack driver. So out of ten, big. <sighs> yeah, it's okay. It's okay. That's you know, we're changing brands is something I would never purposely do in my life, but <laughs> I am always part of a company that changed brands. So whatever. <laughs> um, yeah, another another one like one of my perks. One that I just think is very interesting is InfluxDB. Yeah. I don't know why. It just it it's uh, I kind of really like it. It's really good for small scale like personal things. Um, I think I, sh I guess I shouldn't say that publicly, but whatever. Anyway, I really like it. It's fun. It looks neat. Yeah. Um, so you put it in one of these, you get an alert system going on. So you get like some proactive information about what's going on. And it, you're generally focused on the runtime of like, is this thing working? Right. Yeah. So now you start hitting like tier three and tier four. Um, tier three is like, I want to get some business metrics, like how many checkouts am I getting? Um, you know, if I'm if I'm running a a, a, a uh, like checkout service, like um, what kind of traffic am I getting from different people? You know, I need to understand that. So I might be doing that by sending logs to Hadoop, like you mentioned. I might be doing that through metrics. I'm you know, I have some choices there. That's like one aspect of places people go. The other aspect is distributed tracing. Yeah. And this is where, you know, I have my hello world service, but it turns out I needed a world service and a hello service, right? right. To make the hello world service. <laughs> and so hello world actually calls hello and world right. together. And it's maybe hello goes out. down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or like some developer decides to make hello world, but doesn't tell anyone. And I don't even know there's a sub service that's a dependency that's broken, right? So what distributed right. tracing gives you is when um, when a request flows through your microservices, you can actually track who it talks to and how long each one takes to run. Right. And so I can actually look and say, all right, this hello world uh, was really slow. You know, was it the world service? Was it world services Postgres database? 
Was it the hello service? You know, was it hello services Redis cache? I don't know. It could be I, any of them. Yeah. Let yeah. me figure out where the slowdown was, you know? Maybe it's the authentic authentication server that you're using to authenticate the request that's down for some reason. You there know. you go. Yeah. And and yeah, yeah. but the the cool thing about a distributed trace is it gives you kind of a visibility to what is actually called because you might not even know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a big company, possibly. You could have like 20 people on one project and someone adds a dependency without kind of letting everyone else know. And now suddenly it shows up in your distributed trace because you're tracing your inputs and your outputs and you have yeah. this this overall end-to-end -end flow. So that's kind of the, the most advanced one. And that's where, you know, open tracing was focused. That's where open census was focused. But open telemetry is trying to bridge this whole story. Right, where tracing is kind of the ultimate destination that you get to as you build up these other competencies. Um, and so to, to, to use things like, to, to support tracing these days, you might reach for something like Zipkin or Jaeger or uh, yeah. Google Cloud has something for that as well. For, that was, it's called Cloud Trace. It's right. a very hard, hard name to remember. Yeah. We used to call it Google Cloud Stackdriver Trace, which is... It was called Stackdriver Trace, yeah, yeah I believe. And, now it's just Cloud Trace, yeah. which makes sense. And uh, the the distinguished competition and those other cloud vendors has something similar, right? So yeah, there's like yeah. AWS X-Ray and Microsoft Application Diagnostics or something. Yeah. I forget yeah. what the specific one is. Yeah, but um, so this is not a new concept. So what we what I want is a pretty not, not a Gantt chart, but I want like a like a a chart that shows the movement of of requests from one system to another and the relative offset of time. You know, um, yeah. Uh, so okay, so now we, now I've got a picture of all the things that are involved, just in my little hello world, right? It's not actually that simple. That hello world involves, well, first of all, forget about forget about observability. Just think about the core like infrastructure concerns. I actually probably have a cache in there. There's probably a database, maybe. There's security. There's three other moving parts already, not to mention yeah. the other the other services that you just described. So that's five, six other systems involved before I can even do hello world. And then uh, now we talk about how I'm going to get a picture of what the hell is happening. Now I need things like a metrics, a time series database, a metrics database, uh, optimized for storing metrics, right? Keys and values, statistics, things like that. Um, and so you could use like a SQL database for that, but it's not going to be efficient, right? It's you want yep. something that knows how to keep account and, and give you statistics based on that and project pretty graphs. Um, and then you've got a tracing server. And that's, that's another mm -hmm. thing that's, that came from Google. That was Google's uh, what was that? Uh, it's called Dapper. The Dapper, Dapper paper. The original Dapper paper inspired the rest yeah. of the world. And it used to be that for tracing, the client would perpetuate the whole call graph in the body of, in band, in the body of the request to the next server. And the Dapper distinguishing feature was, hey, no, let's just perpetuate a trace ID and we'll, we'll store the graph off to the side uh, mm -hmm. and just build up the graph. So each hop requires one small request with one trace ID. Uh, and so you could you could hydrate the graph off to the side, so it's not slowing down the request, or it's just as, it's almost not slowing it down. It's just trivial at this point, and it's yeah. cheap, and it doesn't get fatter the further down the graph you go. The the payload at the end isn't like ten times bigger than the one at the beginning, you know, after ten yeah. hours. Uh, yeah. So that's that's a it's, so we've run full circle now, right? Like well, yeah, well, and we have we have a W three C specification for trace now. Yeah. Wow. Like it's a W3C thing. There's a there's a, a HP header called trace parent right. that you use to pass this trace ID, right? Yeah. There's uh there's another one called baggage, W3C right. baggage. Yep. Um that you can use to actually create a key value pair that gets passed all the way down through your system that you can right. leverage. Perpetuated. Um, 
Yeah. Perpetuated. Yeah. Yeah. Context prop. Like honestly, the biggest problem that open telemetry solves is how to propagate context distributed. Yeah. Right. So both inside of your threads, if you're doing crazy threading things like say uh, you're doing RX Java, right. You got to yeah. propagate that context there. Yeah. Um, but you also need to do it across boundaries of like HTTP or RPC or whatever you're doing, yeah. you know. And we solved this problem uh, with Spring Cloud Sleuth, right? But it wasn't standard. It was just one of those things that we made in the Spring ecosystem, made it work there. But you do adapt to the standards, right? You were using ah, the yeah. Zipkin standard. You're using the W3C standard. Yeah, it's yeah. just internally it's solved, yeah. Yeah, uh, but it's just one of those things where it all seems so obvious now, but my goodness, getting all this stuff right for the average and making it so that, because again, that, that diagram we just drew is terrifying. That's not the future I want yeah. to live in, where you have like 10 moving parts before you can say hello world, you know? But it is the world we live in. Any app is going to reasonably need most of those things, even, if, even though I mentioned some of them as a joke for hello world, obviously it makes no sense, but for like a real app, you're going to have all those moving parts. So yeah, especially like is Kubernetes, you know, oh, yeah. so they, <laughs> and like, let's talk a little bit like Spring kind of, you know, evangelize this a good bit, but this notion of like a stateless web app, right? Where I yeah. have a data store somewhere else. Yeah. That's so fundamental now to even how we think and how we propose architectures. Yeah. So at a minimum, you know, you got two. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. For the dead simple stuff. Cause you know, you have your data store and you have your stateless web app. Do you remember the Java community temporarily lost its mind and we all went down the like super stateful web apps? Like we're, do you remember JBoss Seam, right? And, and Spring, <laughs> Spring copied that. Uh, to some extent with the Webflow. I mean, it kind of made sense if you had that use case, but this is all before clients could hold the state, you know? So it was like, okay, yeah. well, if we're going to have state. We might as well just embrace it and build a programming model around it. And so now every single web session requires like megabytes of RAM uh, for every user. But um, yeah, that was Jay's session ID. It was like so big, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And it was still far side better than what they were doing in the ASP.NET world with Windows forums where every page would have like a post back uh, field that was like megs, megabytes of binary base 64 encoded nonsense. Yeah. yeah. Man, I remember some like really hipster frameworks where they were they were super all in on that as like the, yeah. the main thing where you had just huge amount of session storage on your server. Yeah. Right. And, and so I think Heroku did us a big favor there, right? The 12 factor mm -hmm. manifesto, the stateless apps that, that set everybody straight and focuses on I think making microservices and all the other things that would come after that more reasonable, you know? Um, yeah. And, you know, there's always going to be one of your services that has state and maybe sure. you write that in Java and that's fine. Yeah. But only operationalize it. Yeah. Yeah. And you can have a component now and now you can observe it, figure out what the yeah. hell it's doing and, and <laughs> shovel it different places and scale it however you want, you know, like right. that's, uh, that's where we're moving to. Yeah. So we have one library, right? Hotel from a Java pr developer's perspective with, okay interfaces that I can use to then talk. I can forget about Spring for a moment, forget about the transparent, smooth auto integration. If I just did public static void main and I have a library on the class path, I bring in the hotel client from Java, what do I get, right? I'm, I'm, I'm interested so, in tracing, I'm interested in metrics, I'm in, interested in logs. Yeah, that, so, so right now, uh, one thing I want to clarify, open telemetry split between an API and SDK. Sure. So the idea is I take a dependency on the API. I get uh, the ability to create structured logs because we consider this an adaptation of we, we so open telemetry from a logging standpoint wants to uh, 
work with the existing ecosystem as much as mm -hmm. possible. And so you should be able to continue using your existing logging API. But if you would like to add structured logs, like, you know, almost JSON-y like things, yeah. there's a way that you can grab a logger from OpenTelemetry and write structured logs in addition to using Java Util logging, right? So that's or structured whatever. Log, I can use SL4J, Log4J, JUL. You should be able to use all of that and wire it through OpenTelemetry is, right. is kind of the thought. Same with like Spring. If you're using Micrometer, right, there's a bridge to get Micrometer metrics into yeah. OpenTelemetry as an output thing. But I'm going to talk about that second because we're going to talk about the API first, right? So there's this API that I can use where if I don't have anything else, at least I get a bare minimum behavior. So right. there's a metrics API. You know, I can say I want a histogram that will calculate the latency distribution for this, you know, this thing. Um, I can do counters where I just count like, oh, number of errors or number of requests or, um, you know, <laughs> a number of things going into a queue, you yeah. know, or a pipeline. Um, and then I can do gauges. A gauge is like, tell me the current, you know, uh, RAM usage of, of Java right now. Right. Electricity, right. things that go up and down. Yeah. And oh, then wow. I get, the, and I get a tracer, mm -hmm. which is, hey, I want to create a span that says, here's how long this method took to take. Um, it's, so, it's a logical thing. I could, I could start it and stop it whenever I want, but it makes sense yes. to start and stop it at ingress and egress. It makes it sense to start and stop in ingress and egress or important methods. You yeah. Know? So like, here's a, here's me calling a database or here's me calling this really expensive internal business logic method that I want to track how long it takes. Right. That right. sort of thing. Um, it's arbitrary. It doesn't have to be those things. But it's start and stop. Yeah. But underlying all of this is fundamentally this notion of context. Mm -hmm. So there's um, a context library that is meant to be passed through a thread that is handling a request. Right. Um, I can attach things into it. Uh, and there's a bunch of adapters and hooks for various threading models. Like there's one for Spring, where you can make sure that context is, is propagated through Spring um, in a way that you can track the trace ID all the way through the threads right. and make sure you're attaching to the right trace. Um, I can put stuff in there if I want. So I could say like, oh, here's some attributes I want to write here. And then when I send an event over here, I can pull them out and write them. Um, an example of this is when I log, I can create a uh, like a log4j appender that will suck in the trace ID and attach it to every log that I write. Cool. And so then when I'm looking, like I'm debugging, I can actually look at the logs from another system that are associated with the logs for the system that failed because the trace ID is the same. Right. You can, you can oh, you can, you get a, a one pane of glass because you can, you know, yeah. Yeah, across, across logs from different systems because yeah. that trace ID is, is, is now output. So the API from OpenTelemetry, by the way, is a no-op. You pull it in and it's just a bunch of empty interfaces that you get access to that don't do anything at all. You need an SPI. Where the magic, you, what? You need like an implementation of the SPI somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then there's an SDK. And the SDK, which, which you could call the SPI, um, is where you instantiate, okay, um, I want traces to go here. I want logs to go here. Um, I want metrics to go here. Yeah. And you can also say, by the way, I'm using Spring. Go, go grab their metrics out of Macrometer and also pull them in. So you can, can basically you can control your flow of of data within this SDK. Okay. I I thought I misunderstood then. So I thought it would would have been use Otel. Otel then forwards it on to Micrometer. But you're saying Otel is so it's originating the metrics from Micrometer and sending them, sending those off to some place that supports Hotel? 
So here's what's fun. <laughs> there's there's uh, two versions of micrometer integration so far, and we're still working with like Jonathan and the and the micrometer yeah. team to figure out how to do this for reals. Right. Um, the current iteration, if I recall correctly. Um, actually create like micrometer is really flexible. Otel is really flexible. Yeah. That makes for designing this a little hard. Um, <laughs> I believe what happens is the uh, Otel bridges into micrometer such that anytime you write to micrometer, open telemetry calculates and stores the metric. That's what I thought. Okay. So it's, oh, so it's, yes. I'm working in terms of micrometer first and it's a back end mm -hmm. to that sort of. Yeah, and so open telemetry will do the computations and the actual sending it to routing it to a particular location for you. Um, and what you get from that is like, for example, um, if there's this notion of a thing called an exemplar in metrics, right. right? An exemplar is like a particular data point at a particular time, you can attach it to a histogram. You can get trace based exemplars out of your micrometer instrumentation. So wow. if I start a span in Otel, right, and that context is available in thread local, and you write a metric to micrometer, and I'm using this bridge, I should have access to the same context to get the exemplar to attach a trace ID to that thing. Cool. And, and that Which makes is, a lot of sense from the Spring developer perspective, because we've already got micrometer. If you're using any API at all, and again, for most people, they're not even explicitly depending on anything. But if you're yeah. using a specific API, it's already going to be micrometer for the last Exactly. And, and and this is why like the SDK around logging is designed to have these adapters where it says, okay, if you're using Java Util logging or SLF for J, here's a hook where you expose it through Otel. So you get the nice. same egress point, right? You can control the output, but you don't give up those APIs that you're using. And that means it's, not a, it's a configuration yeah. mechanism. It's a, it's a matter of like configuring the appender or configuring what micrometer SPI I'm using or whatever. That's brilliant. Yeah, and, cool. Yeah, and, and Otel's, Otel's main goal, like as a community, is focused on the collection and routing of telemetry. So like, how, what's my sampling rate? You know, should I suppress every fifth log? Right. Do I want 10% of traces or 100%? You know, I might not be able to afford tracing 100% of my traffic because I need to store all the data. Sure. Maybe 10% is good enough, you know? That's my micrometer, my, my uh, for, for tracing, sorry, for, for sleuth, yeah. Tracing, we do 10%, one out of every 10, 0.1, okay? Yeah. And you know how many demos I've had fail because I've, I, I always forget. I need, to, <laughs> I need to generate five, I need to generate 10 requests to, to see one of them. And I'm like, oh, yeah. this is awkward. This has never happened. It happens to me every time and I always forget every time that I need see, to like- In hotel demos- Sampler to 100%, you know? Yeah, in hotel demos, I just set the sampler to 100% I always every forget. time, just guarantee. I always forget. Yeah, this is my problem. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I know it. I mean, I but it. that makes sense. 10% is the default for hotel too. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's reasonable. It's like, because you know, if if there's a real problem, you'll see it after 20 requests. You know, you'll start to see it. But if it's just a ephemeral blip in the, uh, you know, some some ion radiation that changed something in the wrong way just once, then who cares? And move on. Well, that's, that's a whole discussion about sampling rate and the amount of traffic. If you have a successful service, I mean, you can, you can even drop that down to like 0.01%. I don't think I want to tell you the default Google number, but it's really low, yeah. um, right? Because uh, you can still get, you can still determine a hell of a lot of stuff with small numbers with large traffic. Sure. But if you have a yeah. service, like, let's say, let's say I have a credit card service, right? And, right. and I'm only selling 100 things a day because I'm just selling spring source swag. Like the spring source website selling t-shirts, <laughs> maybe you get like five sales a day of t-shirts. I don't know. Yeah. Um, that you could sample hundred percent, you know? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. But the Google search engine, on the other hand, no, you wouldn't want to do that. That'd be insane. <laughs> you do 100% there. That's a lot of data. That's all the data. That's, that's all a, the data on the planet. That's that's like, that's like uh, you know, as much compute as it would take to mine all Bitcoin in the world. Almost. It, it would okay, be, I don't know that for a fact. Yeah, don't no, me either. But yeah. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah, it's not good. Don't do that. We agree. And I think I saw yeah. something from Twitter, because Twitter, they use tracing. I saw something from Twitter. It was like one per every thousand or several thousand requests. Like, it's not... It's it's a very vanishingly small number, and at their scale, they still see you reasonable fast feedback. <laughs> and it's still a lot of traces. Yeah, yeah, a lot of traces. Yeah. So the engines that conduct all this information have to be scalable, and the services you use. That's the other thing I'm glad about Hotel is you're not trying to redo like Zipkin or Jaeger or whatever. I mean, there's like. A lot of R&D that has gone into making these things, first of all, work, and then second of all, scalable, which is a huge part of it. It doesn't work unless it's scalable. Um, yeah. So but just making sure we have a common interface for that is valuable. Yeah. The other, the other big thing with OTEL is we're trying to be really, really friendly with existing instrumentation because yeah. it's expensive for developers to write it. Mm -hmm. um, but also we're trying to be friendly with storage. So previously in the past, right? I wanted to, to monitor and, and maintain things. I might go to like an app dynamics or a new relic or a data dog, right? Yeah. But I'm using their proprietary collection mechanism to get right. the data out. Usually a Java agent, which we mentioned earlier, which doesn't give you enough insight. I wouldn't start with that ever, you know? <laughs> yeah. Um, so so still try the Hotel Java agent. Sure. Yeah, like, except that. that's the anyway. one you like. <laughs> No, no, uh, you know, but but let us know because you, you don't have to use it. You can use the direct instrumentation. And again, we're trying to get this all like baked out of the box for web frameworks. It's just like a thing that you don't think about. It's just there. Yeah. Um, but the the cool thing is we're kind of decoupling the collection and routing of what you store from where you store it and then how you use it. So you can still decide like this database stores things better, this database, you know, like I, I'd prefer, I like the user experience of this versus that. It's all meant to be an open protocol. You just mentioned widespread adoption of that. EBU yeah. versus whatever, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so the cool thing here now is I'm using Spring, right? Yeah. Um, it wasn't an issue before because I had this micrometer thing and micrometer could, micrometer, sorry, Sleuth and micrometer to me are the same because the rebranding. So it's micrometer yeah. sleuth or whatever. Yeah. So a Spring Framework 3, a Spring Boot 3, Spring Framework 6 observation API, right? They're the, unique. Uh, yeah. But, but in spring, you could you had flexible routing. You could send things where you wanted, right? Yep. But like that, that wasn't necessarily true of Postgres, wasn't as true of MySQL, Nginx, Apache, you know, other things right. I'm using. Um, so you still had to make some choices on getting that data out. Now, hopefully, you know, as OpenTelemetry starts succeeding and getting more adoption, you should be able to just rely on this and then send to your favorite backends. Right. You know, wherever you want it to be. That's a, that's a huge part of why the inertia that you have to overcome to become an observer, a player in the observability space right now is painful because every one of them has to build plugins for all these different products. Well, now if the products just do it themselves and they're just doing OTEL and everybody speaks that, suddenly Datadog and PagerDuty and all these other businesses don't have to spend R&D books trying to make their thing work with Postgres or MQC yeah. or MQ or whatever, or Kafka. Yeah, exactly. And and like we're seeing some uh, evidence of success here, like Apache Airflow um, oh, yeah. is looking at, you know, rebaking their instrumentation based on Hotel 
which wow. which is exactly like that's that's a huge success story. You know, they're in Python. They yeah. do this workflow stuff. Uh, yeah. Very, very compelling, cool product. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, moving to Otel, awesome. Great. Like I think my friend uh, Holden Corral works on that stuff, too, or knows about it. Or something. I should ask her. She's super smart. Um, yeah, I. I think that's one of the where's one thing that she moved to. I she was a coworker for like a hot second. Um, yeah, she's yeah. super smart. I, I, whenever I have Very. I, every now and then, I'll just say, "Hey, can you? I need a brain to help me understand this because I, I don't speak big data." Uh, right. Yeah. Right. Um, there's a lot of cool stuff going on there too. Um, that uh, that's like a whole another podcast that I would listen to. Yeah, me too. Actually, we should get her back yeah. on the show. I think she's on the show. Wasn't she? Maybe I just had so many conversations with her. Maybe she wasn't on the show. Uh, no, she's not been on the show. I, this is a action item. I think we have two now. Use there hotel. we go. For everybody, use hotel. And for yeah. me, uh, see if I can get another amazing person on the show. Yeah, yeah. And, and then we can listen to big data stuff. Actually, I just had uh, Tim Spann. Do you know him? Uh, no, no. Yeah. He... Wow. It was one of the more recent episodes, the last few weeks. If you get a chance, listen to that episode. It's the worst part of it is me, as usual. That's the guarantee I make with these episodes is I will be the worst part of it. Um, and it is just, he's, he's one of those people that is up to his eyeballs in data, right? He, he lives, breathes, understands the ecosystem, understands all the players in the same way that you and I do our respective ecosystems uh, all over. Um, yeah, absolutely amazing. So uh, yeah, good episode. Um, look, I I can't believe all the stuff we've managed to cover today. I know that uh, we've just begun to scratch the surface, but I think we should, you know, is there anything huge we should add? Uh, just thank you to everybody for listening. Oh, no, we'll get to that in a second. Oh, okay. Big conceptual things, because uh, I, I know you've got uh, kind of an upper bound, and I want to, like, be respectful. Of that. Oh, that's that's true. Yeah, no, th I, that's, like, the basic uh, introduction to observability. There's lots of cool things we can talk about in use cases. Yes. But I don't want to bore people. Never. You know, this is no bore. I've learned yeah. a ton. And actually, I really appreciate you walking me through the um, – I should ask more guests to do that for me. Explain it like I'm five, because that was really insightful. What you just did uh, was that journey to, to help people kind of appreciate what the den, what the end state is, and then you know why that end state exists and why people care, and then it becomes much more easy to motivate the journey itself. You know, um, right, right, yeah. You sir are a legend uh, for a thousand different reasons. We've only begun to scratch the surface and touch on some of those things. I'm a huge fan. Uh, I love to talk to you, but I have your like, uh, you know, I have I can reach you. You, you don't block me yet. But what about other people? Are you on the internet? Do you want to be found? And if so, where can they find? Sure. Um, the best, actually, one one of the few places that I still pay attention and listen is Twitter. Ooh, I don't tweet often, but I respond. So yeah. it is uh, J Surrett, which is S U E R E T H. Thank you for spelling uh, that. Most people don't. <laughs> well, don't yeah. their own name. They just because they know how to spell it, right? It makes sense. What, so, and if you have trouble spelling it, don't worry. I most recently misspelled it myself um, <laughs> about a day ago. It was rather embarrassing because um, it was like a code review where I misspelled my own name and then had to ask <laughs> someone to like fix it later. Yeah. Um, anyway, so yeah, it's not an easy name to spell. But yeah, it's I'm on Twitter. I respond on Twitter more often than email or anything else. But that's the yep. best way to catch me. Yeah. Amazing. Um, Rock, rock on. Perfect. I don't even know. I don't I get nothing else to say. You're amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time today. 
Uh, and have a good and thank you so much for having me. Like, as always, you don't give yourself enough credit, and it was a wonderful discussion. Love talking to you. Likewise. A Beautiful Podcast is produced by me, Josh Long. I do these podcasts because I believe that everything we do in software is for and made better by people. I want to hear from you. I'm Josh at joshlong.com by email or at S-T-A-R-B-U-X-M-A-N on Twitter, where, of course, my direct messages are wide open. Do you have guest ideas, topic suggestions, feedback? Don't hesitate to reach out. If you like the show, then please consider rating it on iTunes and leaving a review, uh, as it really helps the show. I sampled music from Steve Combs' Them from Morning and Springtime and Steve Combs' Small Victory, both of which are licensed under a Creative Commons license. I'm trying to hire production assistants to make the production of this podcast easier. I want to make sure that we can add things like show notes and transcripts and, and just generally do more. If you would like to advertise on the show, then please reach out to me. Uh, and if you can't uh, or don't want to advertise but would like to otherwise support the show, then please consider supporting me at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Josh Long for as low as $4 a month. Thanks again. No harm came to any seasons in the making of this podcast.